I turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to read again verses 1 through to 7. 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn to the place. You'll remember that quite a number of weeks ago we dealt with the subject and the lifestyle of godly wives. And then following on from that, dealing with the verse 7, we looked at the lifestyle of a Christian husband. And that's what these verses are all about. So let's just read them together, bearing that in mind. We're reading from verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, given honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 7. And we pray God will stamp with the Lord approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And my subject today is lifestyle lessons on the subject of prayer. Now as I've said, I've already preached two messages in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. These messages, as I've told you, were entitled The Lifestyle of the Christian Wife, chapter 3 verses 1 to 6, and The Lifestyle of a Christian Husband, the first part of verse 7. Now, if you look again at the text, you'll see the lifestyle of a Christian couple or lifestyle lessons on the subject of prayer. Notice the words, the last part of the verse, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, I can remember in my own personal life, looking back to a particular situation at home, being told by a doctor or a nurse, you've got to get your priorities right. I I think Rosemary wasn't too well on that occasion. You've got to get 
your priorities right. And so often we have been told, well, you've got to put the Lord first. You, you would agree with that. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, <laughs> but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. So here's the priority. The Lord has to be first. And then we've been taught, at least I have, that the family was second. Your wife and children. And then we've been told, well, well, others have to be next. You've got to think of the needs of others. And then you put yourself last. So, so here's, here's the order of priority. The Lord first, family next, others after that, and then yourself last. And that all sounds very good, doesn't it? Sounds very spiritual. Oh, it's, it's tremendously pious. But I've got a question. In the order of priorities as I have listed this morning, what I have said is it right? And I have to confess, I used to think it's right. I used to think it was great. But I have to tell you, it's not right. I've been listening to uh, none other than, than Dr. Alan Kearns, uh, the Let the Bible Speak broadcast and he made this very point that that order of priority as I have outlined is not right to quote his language it's a big fat no and you who know Dr Kearns could just picture him saying it in the pulpit you see it's wrong it's wrong for a Christian because it's the Lord first it's the Lord second, it's the Lord third, and the Lord fourth and fifth, and so on and so forth. You see, the Lord must be at the center of all that we do. The Lord first in our worship. The Lord in the center as far as the world is concerned. The Lord in the center as far as our work and workplace is concerned. The Lord and the center in my relationship in the home with my wife and my children. The Lord central in my witness as a believer. You see, it's the Lord in the whole manner of our life. Everything that a Christian does, all that he says, all that he thinks, ought to be done in relation to the Lord. I've got a little plaque at home with the text on it 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 and it teaches the principle that, that everything that we do even in the mundane things of eating and drinking that we do to the glory of God and that ought to be our chief concern when it comes to worship when it comes to living our life in the world or in the workplace or having a relationship with our wife and family, the chief concern should be to the glory of God. See, Dr. Kern stressed in that article that we cannot and should not decompartmentalize certain aspects of life. And you know, having thought about that, that is exactly what Peter is teaching here. 
He has been dealing with the subject of the Christian husband and the Christian wife. And they realize that their duty in order to be a good Christian wife or a good Christian husband is not so much directed uh, in, a, in a horizontal level uh, to their uh, husband or to their wife. But it's to live as a Christian wife, as a Christian husband, first and foremost unto the Lord. Peter says, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, having dealt with the Christian wife and the Christian husband, and having emphasized that point before, what remains to be said is this. Lifestyle lessons on the subject of prayer. And I have three very, very simple things to talk to you today about prayer. I want you to notice, first of all, the assumption of prayer. That your prayers be not hindered. See, Paul, or Peter rather, assumes that the Christian couple will pray. Now, remember the subject is the Christian wife, the Christian husband, living out their Christian life in the home with the Lord at the center. And he's saying that as the Christian wife and husband lives the whole of their life before the Lord, putting him first, second, third, and fourth, and so on, now he begins to climax his message by reminding them that they're heirs together of the grace of life, that their prayers be not hindered. Here's a reference to prayer. And it's in the context of the Christian home. This couple are saved. They've been born again. They've been washed in the blood. He, he, he says that they're heirs together of the grace of life. What can that mean other than the fact that they're true Christians? And in a very touching way, he focuses on their devotional life. As husband and wife. <coughs> Together. They pray to the Lord. Here's one of the things. That this couple. Does together. They pray. Now, now let me say this this morning. You cannot be a true Christian. If you do not pray. If you're a prayerless Christian, then I have to be honest this morning. There's a question mark over the validity or reality of your experience of being born again. You see, if you say you're a Christian, that means that you've been washed in the blood and born again of the Holy Spirit and God's Spirit dwells within you. And you don't pray at home by yourself or you don't have family prayer 
or you never come to the public prayer meeting of the church. Then how? How can you claim to be saved and love Christ as Lord and Saviour if you don't pray and speak to him? You see, isn't it searching? This is one of the proofs, I believe, to, to highlight the fact that true conversion has taken place. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Ananias doubted if Saul was genuinely saved. I don't believe he could be saved, Lord. After all, remember what he did. Remember what he has done. Look, Lord. He's even persecuted your people. And what was he told by way of evidence? Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Behold, he prayeth. You see, Paul had been changed now, or Saul of Tarsus had been changed, same person. Before he had said prayers, they could have been ritualistic prayers. They could have been mechanical prayers. He was not praying from the heart. And now behold he prayeth. <coughs> Again I put it to you this morning. You can't be a converted man or a converted woman. If you don't pray. <coughs> it's a sign. It's impossible to be saved. If you don't pray. How did you get saved if you claim to be a Christian? Born of the Spirit, washed in the blood, reconciled to God, justified by faith. How did you get saved? By calling on the Lord. Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember Peter, Lord save me, I perish. <coughs> Turned over there this morning to um, one of the Psalms, to Psalm uh, number 5 and look with me at verses uh, 1 to 3 Psalm uh, 1 to 5 and verses 1 to 3 the psalmist said give ear to my words O Lord consider my meditation hearken unto the voice of my cry my King and my God for unto thee will I pray Notice verse 3, my voice shall thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Now, now here's the language of a true convert. Lord, it doesn't matter. Who doesn't pray? My voice shall thou hear in the morning. Lord, it doesn't matter if the whole world becomes atheistic and turns away from you. My voice will thou hear in the morning. Lord, it doesn't matter if the Christian church closes down its prayer meetings. My voice will you hear in the morning. Lord, it doesn't matter what it costs me, even if it costs my life. My voice shall thou hear in the morning. I set that against the back cloth that you may have heard this week of the murder of 12 professing Christians uh, on uh, a boat. Uh, coming out of some of the African countries and uh, the, something happened to Dingy I think it may have been an inflatable that was beginning to sink and uh, one of the boys uh, he started to pray and this angered some Islamists that were on the boat 
and they ended up murdering 12 Christians, including the boy, because they refused to pray to Allah. Here's the psalmist, and he's using this language, and it's the language of a man in a right relationship with God. It's the language of a true convert. My voice shall thou hear in the morning. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. You see, it's, the psalmist is saying, Lord, it's impossible for me to be born again, washed in the blood, reconciled to you by faith. It's impossible for me to be all this, to have this by way of experience, and not pray. Do you know the Bible is full of reference to prayer? The word pray is used 508 times. You should write that down. The word prayer is used 128 times. And if we add into the mix the words call in the name of the Lord, or my voice shalt thou hear, we realize that time and time again, in most of the books of the Bible, if not all, the subject of prayer comes to the fore. And what's the secret of prayer? I believe it's filling our mind with Jesus Christ. Learning afresh who he is and what he is like and what he has done. And if you fill your mind with the things of the Lord, if you begin to think of Christ and you think biblically, then I believe you've learned one of the secrets of true prayer. Because when your mind is full of Christ, your mouth will be full of cries to the Lord. And you'll be like the psalmist. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. Young people, if I could speak to you, if your mind is full of the television, or movie stars, or football, I have no interest at all in football, by the way, or any sport. Newspapers, magazines, pop stars, music, you know, we'll find a great difficulty in coming to the Lord. Isn't there a lovely reference to prayer, public prayer in the New Testament? Acts chapter 1, 14, where the apostles and the early disciples, 120 in total, met with the woman. There was a 10-day prayer meeting. God's people waiting for the coming of the Spirit, praying until the Holy Ghost come down. You see, they were serious about the blessing of God. And if you and I are serious about the blessing of God in our own life, and in the life of our church, and even in the life of our denomination, and in our country, then we've got to set ourselves to seek God. Isn't it true that we all say, well, we need revival in the Free Presbyterian Church? Isn't it true that we hark back to the old days, to the great meetings? When Dr. Paisley was alive. And we say to ourselves, well, well, that's what we need again. Well, well, how can we know that? One of the things that we must do, although God is sovereign in the pouring out of his spirit, we must set ourselves to seek God, to pray. Here's a lovely little verse. Psalm 109, verse 3. The psalmist said, but I gave myself to prayer. 
I have those words emblazoned in my mind and underlined in my Bible. And in the context of Psalm 109, he faced persecution. There was opposition. There was trouble. And there was change in his circumstances and situation. Things were going wrong. And you know, in those circumstances, what ought we to do? But I gave myself to prayer. And folks, even when we have sinned and made a mistake, and even when we have done wrong, what ought we to do? Get to God. Seek the face of the Lord. And maybe you're thinking, but the devil and all hell's against me in my home. Then you shout hallelujah. Because the Lord hasn't changed. And, and, and it's better to have the devil against you than the Lord against you. Go to God. You know, that's the need of the hour. Go to God. Get to the Lord. If we could illustrate it from Acts chapter 4 verse 31. When the disciples were beaten. Were told that they went to their own company. And they prayed. And the place was shaken. Paul says in Acts or Romans 15 and verse 30. Ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He talked about praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Ephesians 6 and 18. You see, here's the point. True Christians are a praying people. You can't be saved apart from prayer. And if you're genuinely saved, you will pray. You'll want to pray. There'll be that initial calling on the Lord. Lord, save me. I've been brought to an end of myself. I see, Lord, that, 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 that I'm, a, I'm a sinner. And, Lord, I, I, I long to be in a right relationship with you. Lord, save me, wash me, justify me, reconcile me. You see, you can't be saved any other way. And there's a continual calling on the Lord. There's a life of intimate fellowship. I just want to stress the point. I, I know I'm laboring it. Forgive me. You cannot be a prayerless Christian. It's a contradiction. You know when I look at the television and see the Muslims. And I see hundreds and thousands of them turning up at their mosques for prayer. <coughs> and I, I, I know they're praying to this God that they call Allah. Allah's a false god. Islam's a false religion. It's a religion inspired by the devil himself. It's all to do with fear and works. But think of our prayer meetings. It's oftentimes empty. Why? Is it because we've no burden? It's because we've no desire. I have to be honest. In the 16 years I've been here, there's some of you I haven't seen at the prayer meeting. Not even once. And I'm not saying that you come to the prayer meeting and you must cry to God in an audible way. Because you could pray silently in your heart and God could hear your prayers just like you heard Hannah's. 
You can say amen in your heart to the voice of others. Do you know, in the Christian church, and I want to say this, we cannot be a spectator. We can't just be one who fills the pew on a Sunday morning. I, I feel truly, and I, I say this to myself, if we as preachers in the free church lose a deep sense of burden and don't get before the Lord along with our people and cry out for God's blessing then what does the future really hold for us? Because no prayer no blessing you see, when I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it jumped out at me. There's the assumption in prayer. Assumption in prayer. Notice secondly, the access in prayer. See, the true Christian enjoys access to God in prayer. What does he say? That your prayers be not hindered. He not only assumes that they pray, but he believes in his heart that they have access to God in prayer. And I want to put it to you this morning, that access is unique. There's only one way of access to God. Remember what Peter or, or Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We come to God through the one mediator. We come in the name of the Lord Jesus. Listen again to Paul uh, in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter uh, 10 and in the verse 19 he tells us a very important truth. He says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God. That is drawn near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. You see if you have been redeemed. And reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And you've been made a joint heir with Christ and of God. And you are accepted in the beloved. And he has uh, justified you in the sense that you're legally declared righteous. Then you've got through the mediator a right of access to God. It's been established once and for all time. And it centers in the person and work of Christ. And what do we need? We need a fresh view of Christ. Remember after his crucifixion came the resurrection. And after the resurrection that there was his ascension up to heaven. And where is he today? He's at God's right hand. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And when he arose from the dead, the Bible tells us he led captivity captive. That, that is, that, that was our enemy, sin, 
the law, hell, death, the grave. He conquered. He fulfilled. And then he gave gifts to men. And if you're saved this morning, if you're in union with Jesus Christ, then you have a right of access to God in prayer. Notice the word in the text, hindered. It says that your prayers be not hindered. And um, the word hindered there, um, I I want you to understand, um, means exactly that. You could be hindered in prayer. The devil can try to hinder you in your prayer life. And how can you overcome? Well, again, the Apostle John (laughs) gives us the assurance in Revelation chapter 12 and the verse 11. He he tells us this. And they overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. (coughs) You see, it's recognizing who you are. I'm a child of God. I can come to the throne of grace. The king's on the throne. I'm the king's son. And I can come pleading the blood. And asking for an application of that blood in, in my life. You see, there's power in the precious blood to drive the devil back. When we come to God, we stand on the ground of Christ's finished work. And we can know victory. And we can enjoy power. And we can experience even delight and pleasure coming into the presence of God. Let let me illustrate. Remember Esther? The book of Esther. She was married to King Ahasuerus. And he was on the throne this day. And she wanted to speak to him. And she didn't know she was going to be accepted. She didn't know if she was going to be accursed from the presence of the king. She didn't know if he'd get angry and say, look, I don't want to speak to you. Now she did approach him. She was accepted. She did ask him for things. But she came with uncertainty. She she had no assurance she would be accepted. What I'm saying this morning is, We can come because we have a unique access. The way has been opened up. The mediator is now on the throne. And on the ground of his blood, we can approach. We have a unique access, folks. And we have an unhindered access. We can come to the (laughs) Lord at any time, in any place, in any circumstance. We come via Christ. That's why I say, fill your mind with Christ. Get a view of him on the throne. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come pleading the blood. Come taking in your mind. I'm a child of God. I'm a son or daughter of my heavenly father. I'm rightly related to Christ. I'm an heir. Doesn't he mention here joint heirs of the grace of life? You see it all ties together. Lord, it's me. My voice, Lord, shalt thou hear in the morning. 
Here's the assumption prayer. Notice the access to God in prayer. Now I have one final thing. And it's the attack on prayer. And I'm not actually going to bring this thought this morning. I don't want to disappoint you. I'm leaving it hanging, I know, in a sense. And maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. But if I take another 10 or 15 minutes to uh, bring it out and have communion, church will be too long this morning. But I want you to go home with this thought. Peter's a realist. That your prayers be not hindered. He knew that the devil would try and hinder the prayer life of the Christian couple. He knew that the only way they could be overcome was to remember there were joint heirs of the grace of life. But he knew that there were things that the devil would use to try and hinder God's people in prayer. You see, the word prayer here means a pouring out of the heart. Doesn't it speak of desire? Does it speak of intense longing? The word hindered here means to put a, a roadblock on the path. Could, could you think of yourself travelling along a certain road, out for a walk, and then all of a sudden there's a big hole in the road, and, and you can't pass that hole without falling into it? Or you're driving along in the car and here's rocks that have tumbled down from the mountainside and they're scattered over the road and you can't drive over them without damaging your car. <coughs> so you're stopped. And that's what the word prayers mean. An intense longing. A great burden fills your heart and mind. I've got to get to God. I've got to pray. And all of a sudden there's, there's a, a blockage in the road. There's something hindering you. That's why I've suggested there's an attack in prayer. And I believe that there is an attack in prayer. And next week, I'm not going to set the hindrances now, but I've got about seven things, and that will be the subject, seven things that hinder true prayer. You come back next week, and we'll let the thought sink into our mind. Here's an assumption. If I'm a Christian, do I pray at home <coughs> with my family by myself do I come to the public prayer meeting <coughs> now remember you can't be a prayerless Christian remember the access we have it's unique and it's unhindered because the devil can't stop us coming to the throne of grace let's remember his attack There'll be things thrown at us that we've got to recognize and deal with. And by the grace and help of God, we'll deal with them next week. The reason why I don't want to finish the sermon is because I want you to turn to seven references. I want you to see it for yourself from the Bible. I want you to underline the references. And let's learn, if we can, the importance and the immensity of this subject that has troubled and burdened my heart for this past few weeks.